Do keep your Bibles open at this passage together. We're going to look at this this evening. Uh, it's good to come, I think, to a passage like this at this Christmas period. If you've read around the Christmas story, you'll find that uh, so much of the narrative uh, regarding the birth of our Lord is saturated with Old Testament scriptures. We're reminded from the very beginning that what's happening in the arrival of Jesus into the world is the fulfillment of the Hebrew scriptures. Nobody makes this clearer than Luke, the author of the third gospel and the author of this book of Acts. And one of the things I've been emphasizing as we've been studying Acts is that we have got to see this as part of one work in which in Luke-Acts, if you put them together as one work, uh, Luke is describing the work of Jesus Christ. He's, he, he is saying to us that the work of Jesus isn't open until the last page of the book of Acts. That these are the things that Jesus is continuing or has continued to do through the apostles. And as you read Acts in connection with the book of Luke, you begin to see the pattern of fulfillment of biblical prophecy that runs right through both of these books. And this chapter is no different from the rest of what's been going on in Luke Acts as a whole. So it's with that in mind that we come to this story tonight as this man Philip meets this rather exotic character from Ethiopia. One of the things we've discovered as we came to chapter 8 last time is that there's been a great persecution which has led to a new dispersion, this time of the new Israel, the new people of God, into regions beyond Jerusalem, where it all started. The main work has been done by ordinary people, ordinary believers, gossiping the gospel to their friends. And we've seen that work followed up by a new species of Christian worker, an evangelist. And this is this man, Philip. The persecution that takes place in Jerusalem leads to the healing of a relationship that had broken hundreds of years before. Hundreds of years before, Israel had divided into two, ten tribes to the north, two tribes to the south. The tribes to the north centered around Samaria, the tribes to the south centered around Jerusalem. As the passage of time went by, those two peoples were separated, not only geographically, but also eventually religiously as well and culturally. In fact, even racially, because after the Babylonian captivity, the people to the north in Samaria had become intermarried with other races and were half-breeds in the minds and to the eyes of the Jews. But now in this chapter, the promised reunification of Israel is beginning. Because in this chapter, as a result of the persecution in Jerusalem, Jewish believers spilling out of their capital city, begin to go gossiping the gospel, not just in Judea, but in Samaria. And in Samaria, there are men and women who accept, receive, believe in the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, the Messiah who once said to one of their own kind, a Samaritan woman, salvation is of the Jews. So here is the gospel going out and reconciling people who were at odds with one another, bringing together Jew and Samaritan into one Israel of God, authenticated by the apostles who come to check out that it's a true work of God. So that's the, that's the big idea of the passage, is the work of God. And we see the work of God in placing workers. That's the first thing I want you to notice from this passage uh, this evening. 
One of the things we're going to read about in this chapter is a very surprising and great work of God. And how has God or orchestrated it? Well, I've already mentioned the per persecution and the opposition. Clear indication of the sovereignty of God that the opposition did not hinder the church but made the church grow. It's the believers themselves who were trained in, in understanding the, the truth of the gospel who spilled out what they knew and what they knew was used by God to grow the church. That's the first thing. Then the second thing is that there's an angel of the Lord who comes to Philip. This doesn't happen very often in the New Testament. At least doesn't often happen outside of the pages of the gospel. But it happens here. The appearance of the angel of the Lord connects Luke and Acts. This two-volume work connects them together. The ministry of angels. We, we find almost a parallel between Philip, who is a, a, a prophet as well as an evangelist, and similarities to the experience of Elijah the prophet as the angel of the Lord appeared to Philip and to Elijah. Philip and Elijah are moved supernaturally from one place to another and both of them there are incidents where they run up to a chariot of some important person. But what we see at the beginning of this section of course is that Philip is flexible enough to go with the flow of the Spirit's leading. Even once we've said that his experience is unique. This is not the way that normally God works with people today in the sense that he did with Philip. I think there are experiences that people have, there are experiences that I have had, and we may want tentatively to say that perhaps an angel, an angel from God was involved in those experiences, but we, we, don't make those, we don't make those normative and we don't make those, very often we don't make them public because... They're very private and very precious. But this is public property because this is part of Holy Scripture. But certainly we can surely copy Philip in this. He is flexible to the prompting of God in his life. Mr. Spurgeon, the great preacher of the 19th century, would often interrupt the flow of his sermon to say something that came into his head. And the, very often it was those things that came into his head while he was preaching the sermon that God used particularly to drive home to individuals' hearts in the gathering. He often, he often discovered that it was his throwaway lines that had attracted the attention of someone and that were used by God to open their hearts and to drive home the good news of the gospel. It's good for us to listen to the promptings of the Spirit, to check them, to guard, to test them, but but to be open to the promptings of the Spirit. Not only how the Spirit might lead us, but where the Spirit might lead us. But here is Philip, and he's being placed somewhere else. He's in an effective place. He's in a strategic location. There's a great work of God going on, but he's flexible enough to go where God leads him, even when it's out in a desert of all places. Here's a work of God placing workers. And here's a work of God, secondly, preparing hearts. Luke is very careful to tell us that at this point, Philip is taken into Gentile territory, out of Israel. He emphasizes that in the narrative by referring to Gaza at the beginning and to Azontus at the end, that's old Ashdod, these are both cities, if you know your Bible well, you'll know that both of these are part of the five cities of the Philistines that you read about 
in the Old Testament. So this is Philistine territory. It's Gentile territory. It's outside of Israel. And it's there that he comes across this man. This man who's riding in the first century equivalent of an S-class Mercedes-Benz. And uh, we're, we're told that because he's riding in a chariot, of course, that's not normal. Normal, ordinary people like you and me didn't ride chariots in those days. It's telling us that he's at the high end uh, of first century life. We're told more about this man. We're told that this man had a very important role in society. He was a, he was a, a servant of the queen of Nubia or Upper Nile or Ethiopia as it was known then. Uh, Cush as it's often described in the Old Testament. Cush was below modern day Egypt. It was regarded as outside of the Roman Empire. To people within the Roman Empire it symbolized the end of the earth. But the queens of Nubia were often called the Candace. And here we have uh, a reference to the Candace, the queen of this region. And this man is a servant of this person. Now, the interesting thing for us as we come to it this evening is, of course, that part of the prophetic preparation for the coming of the, the Messiah that we're celebrating this Christmas time involved a promise for the people of Cush, this same region of Nubia or Ethiopia, as it's called in this chapter. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 11, Cush is described as one of those lands that's going to benefit when the Lord comes, when the Lord's Messiah appears. On the days when the Lord will, quote, reclaim the remnant that is left of his people, when those days come when the Messiah is raised as a banner for the peoples and the nations rally to him. So the reassignment of Philip, the meeting with this man from Cush, has been scripted by God and has been written in God's book. The whole story has been scripted by God. This, in other words, is in the Bible because this is not just another conversion experience. This is part of the end time events that were predicted for the coming of the Messiah. It's a significant end time event. And it's a signal to us that God keeps his word. Every bit as much as God kept the promise that a virgin would conceive and bring forth a child. God is going to keep his promise that the people of Cush will hear the good news whenever the Messiah is raised up as a signal to the nations. Just as Philip is going to raise him up as a signal to this man. Now why is this man important? Why is this part of that end time movement of Scripture. And the answer is that both geographically he's outside of Israel, ethnically he's separated from Israel, and physically he has a defect that disqualifies him from ever going to the temple of God in Jerusalem. What we gather as we read the story is that this man had become a God-fearer, a Gentile, interested in Judaism. He's a God-fearer, he's a Gentile, and he's a eunuch. And as a eunuch, he was forbidden to enter the sanctuary of God. Deuteronomy 23, verse 1, the law read, No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly 
of the Lord. That physical defect, like that of other defects in the Old Testament, disqualified someone from entering the temple of the Lord. It was an outward and visible sign of a spiritual defilement that makes every one of us unfit for the presence of God. In the Old Testament, God's dealing with His people, remember, in picture language. He's giving them vivid, visual, and intellectual ways of understanding what it is to come into the presence of God. Only what is whole can come into the presence of God. And because there is so much that is not whole, it's a reminder to us all around us that actually, inwardly, none of us is fit to come into the presence of God. So whenever a person sees someone like this, banned from coming into the temple, they're being reminded, they're being reminded, it's in their face that all of us spiritually are defective and all of us spiritually are like Gentiles and all of us need God's cleansing and work uh, in our lives. So here's a man who's doubly disqualified from coming to know God, to, to come into the temple of God. So what was it that brought him to Jerusalem? Well, what must have happened is that here was a man who'd started to ask questions. Perhaps he was asking questions about the, the immorality that was rife within uh, Roman society as he looked across the wall from his distant kingdom to the great empire just to the north. And he looked at that great empire that co covered the earth and he'd heard the stories, the explicit stories of immorality that were going on there. Maybe there were elements of paganism in his own culture that had made him ask questions, but he'd begun to ask questions and he'd begun to look for answers. God had been unsettling him inside. His quest was to find out the meaning of life, to have some of his questions answered. Some of the most profound questions that ever entered the mind and the heart of an individual. God had put those questions in his heart. His life had been shaken. It had not yet found resolution. He'd been unsettled. So unsettled that he was willing to take the long, arduous, and dangerous journey from Nubia through Egypt, through the Sinai Peninsula, and up towards Jerusalem. It was a long and costly journey. I don't know if he'd come in Queen's business there, or whether he asked for time off in order to make the journey, but certainly it was an arduous, dangerous journey. And when you follow him on the journey, you ask yourself, what did he find when he got to Jerusalem? Well, at best he found himself restricted. There is a question as to whether or not he was even permitted into the court of the Gentiles at the temple. It may very well be because he was a eunuch, he wasn't even allowed to go in there. But at best, that's where he would have been allowed to be. And the court of the Gentiles was a noisy, busy affair. We know that theirs was buying and selling. It was, like, it was like Disneyland there in the court of the Gentiles. There was absolutely nothing holy, nothing, you know, uh, uh, contemplative or meditative or quiet or still or peaceful in the court of the Gentiles. It was a zoo. And that's where he would have come, in, if he'd been allowed in there, that's where he would have been trying to worship God, trying to understand what this Judaism was all about. And perhaps it was there in the zoo that was called the Court of the Gentiles that he'd come across a little Christian bookshop. Well, it would have been a Jewish bookshop. 
And uh, he had bought a scroll. He had purchased a scroll. These were, there was, these were expensive items. Maybe it was only one that he purchased. It was a scroll of Isaiah, as we'll see. Now, I want you to notice then the steps that were taken to bring this man, who would have been disappointed by his visit to Jerusalem, to meeting Philip. Philip is taken by God from his place of usefulness and he finds himself in the desert. In the desert, he finds himself reassured by God that he's in the right place. Well, you would, wouldn't you, if you find yourself in the desert? After having a busy place, there you are, and, and you're no longer busy, and there's nobody there, and you, you're an evangelist, and evangelists need people. Like preachers need congregations. I mean, I know I started off preaching to cows, but I don't know that I'd like to go back to preaching to cows, really. So he gives him the reassurance that he's in the right place. And then he sees this man on his chariot. And he approaches the man and overhears him reading aloud from the prophecy of Isaiah. Now, I ask you, if you want to meet somebody and have a conversation about Christianity and talk about Jesus, there are few passages in the Bible that you would want someone to read that are better than the one this man was reading. I bet Philip nearly choked when he heard the guy reading aloud, perhaps with his finger over the Hebrew, sounding out the words, and Philip realized he's reading from Isaiah chapter 53. I wonder why he chose that section of the Scripture. I wonder. See, Isaiah 53 would have been part of one scroll thing that you would have gotten in those days. And in that, of course, there would have been Isaiah chapter 60, 56. Isaiah 56 says this, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, quote, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. That is, I'm unfruitful. I can't be of use to God or be blessed by Him. I wonder if he got that because someone had hinted to him that this section of Isaiah the prophet had something to say to someone who wasn't a Jew and who was defective and who was excluded. I wonder if someone suggested to him he might want to read that section because in that section... God had said something to people in his category. A foreigner and a eunuch. It's at least an interesting question, isn't it? And so he comes and he's reading this. And Philip runs up to him, overhears him, and asks him the question. Do you understand what you're reading? Let me just pause here to say that's a good thing. Get people reading the Bible. Get your friends reading the Bible. When your friends ask you about where you've been on Sunday and you say to them, usually with a little bit of a blush, oh, you're, that you were in church, and they ask you why you go, why don't you, why don't you, why don't you give them a, a test or, or a, a proposal? Why don't you suggest to them that before they die, it might be good for them to read parts of the Bible? And give them a little printout of a little section of Scripture. 
and ask them to go away and read it. If they don't understand what they're reading, to bring it back to you and you'll have a, you'll have a stab at, at explaining it to them. Non-threatening, not in your face, not putting your fingers in their eyes, none of that stuff. Give them something that exposes them to the Word of God. It works. Back to the sermon. We see the work of God placing workers. We see the work of God preparing hearts. And then we see the work of God in providing teachers. Philip ran up to him, as I say, and he said, Do you understand what you're reading? And the man said, How can I unless someone guides me? Here again is an important thing. Reading the Word of God, reading the Bible, people need help in doing that. That's where we come in. That's where believers come in. Well, what's he reading? Well, he's reading this section from Isaiah 53. Like a, sh like a sheep who was led to the slaughter, like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. And as he reads that, and as we overhear him reading that little section, and as the eunuch says to to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself, about someone else? Here is, if you like, a, a providential provision for Philip. Here is Philip. He's got the chance to preach to the gospel to this man. And he has the presence of mind to ask him, do you understand what you're reading? And then the man reads this section and asks him another question. It's in the providence of God that he has this opportunity to read from this very chapter that begins by saying that the Messiah will be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And goes on to say that he will submit humbly to an unjust death, that he will bear the sins of his people, that he will overcome death in the end, and that he will justify many as a result. That's what the chapter is all about. The incident here reminds us that Israel's witness was already growing in the world of that day. It had grown beyond the temple and its public worship. There were synagogues all over the place. There were people all over, scattered all over the then known world who were Jews and who were setting up these study centers, these synagogues, and there were Gentiles who were being exposed to the teaching of the Old Testament in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. Well, Philip has a key to the Bible in his hand. Philip opened, opened his mouth, we read, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. There's a lesson. There's a lesson here. One lesson is that though scripture is as simple that a child can grasp it, there, there are depths to scripture that need explanation. So it's possible to grasp the big ideas of the Bible, but not all ideas in the Bible are equally transparent, which is why God has raised up evangelists and pastor teachers to expound its meaning and drive home its message. Not everybody is a teacher. That's okay. All of us can say what we know, and that's okay, and that's good. But one thing about those who handle the Bible, though, whatever it is, whether it's the believer who is sharing with a friend of theirs, trying to explain the Bible to them, or whether it's a Bible teacher who's teaching the Bible to others, here is the big idea that Luke shows us through the experience of Philip, and it's this, that invariably, ultimately, ultimately, all Scripture finds its center and its end in Jesus. 
It's, it's centered in Jesus, and it's all leading to Jesus. He is the goal. He is the purpose. He is the end of Scripture. That's what Jesus taught the, the disciples himself. Luke records that in Luke chapter 24, uh, when he says uh, that the Lord Jesus said to them, O foolish one, slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Beginning with that scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. You know, the, the, the scholars within Judaism, they argued about this question. Who is Isaiah, Isaiah speaking about here? Who is he talking about here? And they had various solutions. Was it the community of the Jews or some prophet or what? Who was it? And what Philip does is this. He gives them the Christian answer to that question. The Christian answer to the question, who is Isaiah speaking about here, is he is speaking about Jesus here. Here is Jesus' rejection, Jesus' sufferings, mistrial, crucifixion. It just, the, the whole of that chapter, in a sense, echoes the experience of the Lord Jesus. He announces in, from that chapter, he announces the resurrection. And you see in this little section that this man has read, there are some there are some attractive things. Here is a, a non-retaliating Messiah. When he, was, when he was reviled, he didn't revile back. When there was verbal abuse, he didn't verbally abuse his abuser. There's a non-retaliatory Messiah here who's choosing to suffer unjustly, who's loving his enemies even as they throw their insults at him. You can imagine that that's an attractive story. But you can be sure that Philip didn't stop there. From that scripture, he preached Jesus. In other words, he went to what happens after that scripture. He, he continued in the chapter. He would have gone on to say, this is the one who was pierced for our transgressions, who was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that we deserved that brings peace, he endured. His wounds bring our spiritual healing. We've gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He is the guilt bearer. He is the sin bearer. He is the wrath bearer. He is the punishment bearer. Jesus is standing in place of his people. And he's offering himself as an offering for guilt. And he would have gone on to spell out the effects of this. Because of what he has done, Many will be accounted righteous. Many will be justified. Many will be accounted righteous because he shall bear their iniquities. Philip would have gone on to preach a full-orbed gospel to this man. He would have not simply preached the law, not simply preached the law or Christian ethics, we need to preach the law because the law of God is the law of God. It is the Word of God and it is the, remains the standard against which we measure our lives. And even for the believer, the law of God shows us what living a life of love looks like in practice. The law of God standing alone isn't good news to anybody. The law of God tells me why I need good news. The, 
The law tells me the bad news that sets me up to understand how wonderful a thing it is that in Christ the good news has come into the world. Well, this is the message then that Philip would have preached to this man. Whenever you have an opportunity to address the world, what you would say to the world tells you a lot about what your convictions are and what your understanding of the gospel is. When someone is on uh, television, for example, and we saw this a lot in the United Kingdom, whenever people were being interviewed, very seldom was anybody religious interviewed, certainly very seldom was anybody Christian interviewed, and those who were, very often, were not people who really believed the Bible. When they were asked, for example, at Christmas time, what is a Christian message at Christmas time? They would waffle on about, about family and ethics and justice and kindness and da-da-da-da-da-da. And you could see, you could see in the faces of the interviewer, this was boring stuff. I mean, could say that stuff. Anybody. There's a classic this, this week. Uh, uh, sadly, Christopher Hitchens, the famous atheist, died. Uh, I very narrowly found myself debating him on one occasion and uh, sadly wasn't in the end able to do that. But uh, he died this week and there's a famous incident where a Unitarian minister, Unitarians don't believe that Jesus is God, Actually, Unitarians don't believe very much at all. Uh, this Unitarian minister had talked about the beauty of Jesus' teachings, but rejected his divinity, and this atheist said this to him. Listen. I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah, that he is God, that he rose again from the dead, and that by his sacrifice our sins are forgiven, you're not in any meaningful sense, a Christian. I mean, he got what it was about. Even if, if, even if he rejected it, he got what it was about. And so I'm saying that what you would say if you were put on the spot and asked to summarize what it is you believe as a Christian will tell you a lot about whether you really know the gospel. Well, this is the kind of gospel this man would have preached to this man. I think from that scripture, he would have taken him further in the book of Isaiah. It was the only Bible the man had. I reckon he would have said to him, scroll up a bit. Go to chapter... <laughs> We're really humming along tonight. Uh, go, go up to chapter 56 of Isaiah. Go up to that chapter and, let, and, and read that. Read that to me. Spell it out. I can imagine the man roll, scrolling up and, and then with his finger, starting here, of course, and working from right to left, he would be reading the Hebrew and he would be reading this. Let not the foreigner, that's somebody like him, let not the foreigner who's joined himself to the Lord say that the Lord will separate me from his people. He won't. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I'm a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who obey my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name 
better than sons and daughters. I will, be, I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. There was a promise in the Bible with his name on it. He's a eunuch, goodness sake, from Ethiopia, a foreigner and a eunuch. And here's a section of the Bible has his name on it and has a promise in it. Don't you think Philip would have passed that on to this man? I think he did. Or else the man read it later as he's driving the chariot across Egypt. I know one thing. He went back home. The Ethiopian Orthodox Church has survived from that period to today. All kinds of persecution. State persecution, Islamic persecution. It claims to be founded by this very man. But I do know this. When it says in the text, I will give them an everlasting name. Let me tell you, this book's gone out into all the world. It will be there until Jesus comes back again. And wherever this book is read, in whatever language it's read, to whatever people group it's read, the everlasting name of this eunuch will be in it. God's word is true. This eunuch's name remains part of the revelation of the continuing work of Jesus Christ in the world. It's in the Bible because God has kept his promise. What I want to say to you is, your name isn't in the Bible. You're not a foreigner or you're not a eunuch, I hope, but you're here. And I want to say to you, just as surely as God's promise covered this man with all his disabilities and inadequacies that kept him out of the courts of God, and welcomed him in, welcomed him in because of the work of the Lord Jesus. He's baptized. He becomes a part. He becomes no longer an outcast. He becomes a member of the new covenant people of God. I want to say to you, whatever, whatever you feel is keeping you at a distance, whatever you feel is blocking your coming into the presence of God, whatever it is in your past, in your record, whatever it is, that makes you feel unworthy, unwanted. I want to say to you on the authority of God's word to you this evening, come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would please by your spirit drive home to the hearts of those who feel distant, disadvantaged, disqualified, devalued, this glorious invitation. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. May that ring in their ears and may they respond to it in faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.